April 19th, 2023. Let's continue in our learning of Morene Vuchim, uh, but return back to what maybe 10 or so classes ago uh, we discussed and read in a bit of a different context, and that is in Chilek Aleph and Perek Zayin. So we're returning to this Perek. Now, the way we encountered this Perek the first time was in the early stages of our Limud, of our study of Morene Vuchim. We were talking at the time about a, a concept which we carried through and will, to a certain extent, return to and continue carrying through tonight, and that was Harambam's general picture and direction with regards to refinement of human beings, of Am Yisrael, as imagining and realizing that it's uh, refining and perfecting our intellect. To understand Selim Elohim, he told us in the very early of Morei Nebuchim, is to understand a circumstance, a situation where a person has refined their thought, their perceptions, their understandings are now in the domain we discussed at the beginning of the Morei of uh, Emet and Sheker. They've come to seeing the world through the prism of truth, through the prism of Torah. Uh, that's what we're searching for. That's what we're seeking in our lives. Mitzvot are there to aid us in this process. Obviously, there are other dimensions to mitzvot in terms of setting up societal uh, law and structure. And there's, But ultimately speaking, that's what we're searching for. That's what we're seeking. And as a result, by extension, Harambam's discussion, which we spend time on as well, of kedushah, of taharah, of matters of that sort, are not to be seen, he tells us time and again, as matters of essence. They're rather directions. They're rather ways in which we, uh, through our minds and bodies, bring ourselves to greater and deeper understandings of truth. Uh, that's what it is. So to understand Kiddushah as some sort of inherent and uh, reality which is of essence that uh, stands separate from anything else and Tum'ah as some sort of uh, creepy, crawling, ex- existential threat and reality, for Harambam there's no such reality, there's no such thoughts. These are concepts, these are constructs which the Torah instructs us about in order to bring us to a better character and fine-tuned uh, minds and, and appreciation, understanding of reality. It was in that context, which is what the context has been to a certain extent throughout, shifting it in one way or another in order to tease out this sort of idea, that we, we discussed and read about how Harambam described the birth of Shet, Shet being the third child of Adam, as the first one, so to speak, who got it right. He read the Pesukim in the Torah, and the description of Shet, in contrast to Cain and Hevel, is that Shet was born with the Tselem and Demut of Adam. Adam was born with Tselem and Demut of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Those words, without getting into the specific words of Harambam on this matter, are a description of the intellect, not of, uh, I don't know, uh, physical or emotional, it's of the intellect. The Tselem Elohim, that's inherent to human beings under many circumstances, is a mind which is fine-tuned for the reality of truths. Uh, That being the case, he talked about how Shet was the first of those children. He described in contrast how Adam, with the birth of Cain and Hevel, and by extension over the course of the first 130 years of his life until he gives birth to Shet, had many other children 
But those children were not children who had this Tzelem Elokim, he's deducing from the Torah, because he hadn't instructed them, that's what we paid careful attention to, he hadn't taught them in order to bring them to that perfected mind. So I, I want to return to that and specifically hit the point that we alluded to and even read inside at the time, where Harambam describes a Midrash that he cites as um, attributing the name to these children who were born before Shet, and they were known as Shedim. Those were the words of Harambam. And Harambam defined for us Shedim in a little bit of, uh, well, not the way that you and I would imagine. When the Gemara mentions Shedim or Mazikin and matters of that sort, generally speaking, we translate them as demons. We translate them as uh, demonic beings who would affect or have potential to affect you and me. Anambam had an interesting perspective. These were the children who were born to Adam and Hava, to Adam, prior to uh, Shet. These were the children who were born without uh, Adam having instructed them and, and brought them to Tselem Elohim. That's what a Shed is and was. That's very significant. That already brings us to the topic of the class tonight, and that is that for Harambam, this thought, this concept of their being challenges in existence from some sort of spirit or spirits that lay outside of the divine realm. No such thing. Shedim for Harambam, now he's not the only to think like this, but he's certainly somewhat novel in this respect. Shedim for Harambam are retranslated. Uh, whenever the rabbis mention the, the, this name, Shed, um, which is in many circumstances, either di directly or they allude to it in Talmud, Harambam will need to, based on this interpretation, have some sort of clever interpretation to why they said that and what they meant, because after all, his description of Shedim in this context is and not of demonic beings, no such thing for Harambam. That would defy his general description of there's no such thing as an inherent essence of Tum'ah. There's no such thing as an inherent, even amazingly, generally speaking, matter of Kiddushah, aside from God himself, although we fine-tune that. Uh, but that, that being the case, those are the paragraphs I'd like to return to and just bring you a little bit forward with regards to Harambam's uh, discussion of these matters elsewhere and how that really will shape up. So we're here in, um, in, in Helik Aleph in Perek Zayin. We had read already this entire Perek, but on page 41 here in the third paragraph. Now really what Harambam is doing in this Perek, if you recall, is he's defining the word Yeled or Yalad, birth. And he points out how birthing Maybe you and I will, generally speaking, use it with regards to children, but birthing ideas, the ground can birth things, and so forth. And as a result, to talk about, to talk about growth that comes from need not mean the biological, it can also mean the theoretical or the conceptual. In this context, writes Harambam, based on this idea that I can describe uh, those whom I've taught as my children, is what the rabbis do, I can do based on why they make children. I've birthed them knowledge. I've grown them in certain ways beyond the physical. Ne'emar al-adam, it's in that context, based on using the word and understanding it in that way. adam His understanding of the birth of shet is that this birth was greater than just a physical birth. It's the birth of... 
true intellect within shit. All the children who preceded shit, including Cain and Hevel, they didn't have true form of human beings. They didn't have this refined and perfected intellect, which is that of you know, we we attribute to godliness itself. That's in contrast to this shit, his third child, whom he taught and explained and fine-tuned his mind. It's for that reason it said about him, the birth of shit means he birthed into shit. He grew from shit, knowledge, True understandings. Mikan, based on this, as Harambam Namadata, we learn, any person who hasn't come to that fine, refined thought and intellect and understanding and perception of truths, right. sounds a little harsh, but says Harambam, you're not a human being if you haven't come to that, because our definition of human beings is Tzelem Elohim, Tzelem Elohim is defined in turn, in Maimonidean terms, this is not meant to put down other people or other things, this is meant in Maimonidean, Harambam's vision, Tzelem Elohim means you've come to that perception of truths in your mind, you don't have that, well then you don't have Tzelem Elohim, you're not a human being, but I look like a human being, I seem, I talk like one, but you're not a true human being, because a true human being is a person who utilizes their mind appropriately. He appears, he seems to be a human being. He has abilities. He is, he's, he's, he is separated not only from human beings, but even from animals. Oh, maybe he's greater than animals. Says Arambam, he's worse than animals. A human being who lacks proper intellect is worse than animals. For what reason? He says, because human beings have the potential to use their mind and to refine it, their potential is greater than that of animals. Animals who have less potential, which will live life with less capabilities to use their mind to affect reality, have less harm that they can cause. Human beings who have more potential but haven't refined their thought, in turn, are a lot more dangerous, he writes. Uh, in my mind, easy to understand. A person who hasn't come to Tzelem Elohim uses their mind, but uses it in a detrimental, um, um, harmful way. Based on this, says Harambam, person who doesn't have this Tzelem Elohim is like human beings or he copies human beings. He's similar in some respect. And that indeed were the children who preceded Shet. And now he cites from a Midrash. All the years in which Adam was, so to speak, distanced after the banishment that the Torah describes from the Gan. He was giving birth. He was giving birth to spirits. 
He defines the word in the Midrash of Ruhot spirits to be, well, it sounds like demons. What, what do you mean? Kasher Nitze, Holi Domelo. When he was up to it, Kacher Nirza, when he when he when he made peace with God with himself, he then gave birth to children similar to him. Kilomar bedam betzam bidmuto ketzalmo sheneimar vaihi adam shalshim matchana vayolid bidmuto ketzalmo. So, what is the definition based on context, based on the simple reading of Adam Bama? Sure. What do you mean, Kacher Nirza? Once Adam willed it, once he was no Nirza milashon Ritzui. Once he was um, got a once he made peace with God. Ritzui means to. You know, get, get, uh, to make uh, to, to make amends. Once he made amends, he was nazuf from God, which Arambam defines as his mind was not set straight. Once he straightened it, he straightened his children or child that he had at that time as well. But his definition then of shedim, he made quite clear for us. It's not some sort of demon spirit, which is separate from the world that you and I know it, kind of threatening ourselves in some sort of God d- 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 domain. No. Says Arambam, you want to know what those beings that were being birthed during that time? They probably looked like other human beings. Uh, the only thing is, they weren't regular human beings. Well, they seemed like, they talked like that, but they weren't, because their minds weren't Eitzelem Elohim. Because those human beings were not human beings, they were appearing like human beings, but in truth, what he describes in the terminology of the rabbis, shedim. That being the case, what Harambam effectively has done over here is completely turn all the magical, mystical references, it appears, of the Talmud, of the Midrashim, with regards to Shedim, well, they're demons, what happened to them, where'd they go? Harambam has effectively told us that that word, much as he does with Hebrew very often, is not a word simply defined by the way people use it today, or even used it uh, hundreds of years ago. The word is instead defined as a spirit of sorts, which can and will be, similar to you and me, but might not have the mind of a person or does not have the mind of a person who's truly refined it. Now, that being the case, again, this is directly in line with anything and everything we, to a certain extent, expect from Harambam. Harambam's vision over here is we're not dealing, we're not contending with other forces and essences outside of uh, our regular, normal, understandable domain. A shed, in turn, would be a challenge to him. Not a challenge at all. How is that Midrash alternatively defined, which will in turn give us a little perspective of the novelty of Harambam over here? So there is a, a, a somewhat well-known commentary. It's cited by Radak. Radak was Rabbi David Kimchi. He lived in southern France. He was a 12th century uh, commentator to the Torah. And in his commentary to Bereshit, right there in Pereke, in Pasugimal, he cites from Rabenu Nisim Gaon, who in turn was citing from Rabenu Shirira Gaon. So we're going back a good thousand years in terms of this interpretation. The interpretation that, that he, Rabenu Shirira Gaon, set forth was, listen to it for a moment, appreciate it, was, well, when the Midrash, he really quotes a Gemara, we'll discuss the words in the Gemara in a moment, describes these spirits or even demons that were born, uh, he as well doesn't deny or doesn't uh, suggest that Havar, whoever Adam's having these children with, is birthing uh, some sort of uh, spiritual being. But what it is a description of is deformed bodies. It's children and human beings whose bodies were deformed. That's what the Midrash is referring to. 
pause for a second and appreciate how Harambam, in line with his predecessors, does define Shedim and those sorts of matters, not in the way that we perhaps would expect it. It is somewhat allegorical. But instead of defining the blemish in the body, that's not what a blemish is about. So you have a bodily deformity that doesn't define you as not having a tzela melokim. That doesn't define you as a shed. That doesn't define you as anything less than a regular. So it's a question of the mind. That in and of itself is very significant, at least in my mind. Um, that divide, both explaining a midrash, not in its simple interpretation, but each one of them, Rabbeinu Rav Shiridago, and bringing us in the physical world, uh, what you see and, and feel, and Harambam very consistently keeping us in the mind. Uh, the truth is, and I'll just mention it briefly because we'll return to it in a moment or two, uh, Radak is quoting from a Gemara in Masechet Eruvin, which is almost identical to the Midrash Harambam quote, which is a little curious then. Why did Harambam quote from a Midrash instead of from the Gemara? The Gemara has Midrashim as well, but it's a little bit more accessible. Generally speaking, we'll cite from, from Gemara, he and... Pretty much everyone will quote from Gemara instead of from Midrash. Here's the words in the, in the Gemara that Radak cites in source one of the first line. Kolotamashanim, those 130 years, Shahayad Amarishon Binidui, he was separated and distanced from God. Hayamolid, listen to the words of the Gemara, Ruhin, spirits that we had in the Midrash, Shedin, Vililin. Shedim and Lilin are also these, these, these common words with regards to spirits. So this means that the, the Gemara's wording is a little bit more direct. Harambab took Ruchot and said, well, that means Shedim, which means, the Gemara mentions those, it's, it's somewhat, and if you read as we should, and we don't enough, every word of the Moreh very carefully, you pick up on the fact that he quoted this Midrash instead of the Gemara, and you wonder why. We're going to leave that for a moment on the back burner. But our objective, our understanding then in this context is the consistency of Harambam, uh, his approach to this matter, an issue we took up in the past, but are fine-tuning its significance. This was as you might understand and imagine based on what we've discussed until now, not without controversy. This approach of Harambam in distancing in his mind um, the magical uh, mentions even in the Torah of Chover uh, Haver, for example, whom, which we'll talk about in source number five, of a Mechashef, of a Nohesh, of all these sorts of witchcraft and sorcery and all these sorts of issues which the Torah forbids and saying those are not matters of essence, that's all a joke, that's all not for real, that's what they used to believe. Uh, not certainly not the simple reading of the Torah, and as a result, not in his time even, the most traditional one, certainly not after his time. Some several hundred years later, in the 18th century, Gaon Mivilna in his Haggahot, in his glasses to Shohan Aruch, who cited Harambam of source number five, in Siman Kof Aintet of Yore De'ah, Gaon Mivilna picks up on this and says, something's wrong here. Shohan Aruch is quoting from Harambam, there's an issue here. You have to understand, Harambam's words were really blemished. He's the one who's blemished. His mind was taken astray. It's a skewed mode of thought. He cites Harambam as the source. Ken Katav Beferusha Mishnah is a very famous Haggaha, glasses to Shahana Ruchav Gaon Mivilna, the Perikdal Davudazara Aval. Here's the words of Gaon Mivilna. Kol habayim aharav. Everyone who came after Harambam, halku alav. They disagreed with him. Shehare harbe lahashim nemru The Gemara talks about a lot of these 
whisper incantations which help cure or change reality. Harambam was ruined by this uh, philosophy, which, of course, Gaon Mivilna is suggesting is not per se a part of our tradition. Now, in the brackets, on purpose, is the word ha'arura, the cursed philosophy. There is controversy about that word ha'arura, and then those last words in the, in, in the last line, shezorkino tola that you throw the philosophy into the garbage, about whether Gaon Mivilna wrote those words or not. Chacham Vadia Yosef and his Aleph brings that there's a debate amongst his students about whether Gaon Mivilna was that harsh. It doesn't matter in my mind whether he was that harsh or not. His words will speak for themselves. Whether he says you should throw it into the garbage and philosophy is cursed or not, he says the Harambam's opinion on this matter is a lethal opinion. It's because Harambam was driven astray or moved off the straight path because of philosophy that he believed amulets and witchcraft and names having powers are all uh, false. He was already hit on his proverbial head. We find many cases in the Gemara where there are names. This classic Ashkenazi, Sephardi, ideological stuff. It's an interesting point. I'm not sure exactly which way you're going to go because I know many Sephardim who are very driven by Kami'ot, Shemot, Lehashim, and Keshafim. So if that's, if that's your... Uh, all right, I don't know. Okay, if you... That's certainly true. Um, the, the, he said, he said, today post Harambam. I wasn't sure what today meant. Um, certainly in the Geonim, you have a lot against this. Harambam is certainly opposed to this. You might say Ramban Nahmani, who's Spanish. I mean, can't find more Sephardic than that. Maybe an influence, quite, quite certainly an influence from Ashkenazim in terms of his thought, was driven by that. Uh, so maybe if you're pushing this back some eight, nine hundred years, yes, you're right. It is a divide to a certain extent between Svarad and Ashkenaz. Um, and, and no surprise in this respect uh, then. Again, uh, what happens in this ellipsis, this dot, dot, dot afterwards, is Gaon Mivilna quotes a whole slew of Gemarot. Gaon Mivilna knew everything. A whole slew of Gemarot in which there's reference. Of course, quoting Gemarot doesn't per se prove anything uh, significant because each one of them will be defined as an allegory, as being mentioned for one reason or another. Okay? He writes, however, you have many amulets mentioned in the Gemara, and you have mention of, 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 of incantations. It's hard to count how many times the rabbis taught. It's the philosophy which drew Harambam away from a simple and proper interpretation of the Talmud. Heaven forbid, do I believe believe in them, says all these matters are peshad, need to be read in the most simple interpretation, I guess the easiest way to define those words. You should just know, Gaon Mivilna was quite, it appears, a surface learner, far from it. He had a depth beyond most of the rabbis in the last three, four hundred years that I know of in terms of their writing. So he had a real depth. He was very attuned to uh, allegory and a deeper meaning. On this matter, he seems very, not seems, he is very disturbed by Hanumbam's approach. He says, I'll be honest with you, of course there's a depth, but 
uh, which you should throw into the garbage, he maybe says. Not the depth with the philosophers, but rather that of the mystics, that of, we'll call it the Kabbalists. Right, those are Gaon Mivilna's words. Those are very significant words. When did Gaon Mivilna live? From the early to mid-slash-late uh, 18th century. Uh, it's, late 1700s? It's, it's early to maybe 1770-somethings when he passed away or so. All right. Um, well, that's Gaon Mivilna's take, take on this. Now, now remember that Gaon Mivilna is living during a time, I don't know if there's an irony to this or this might be part of it. I'm not fully certain. You see, Gaon Mivilna is living during a time during which there are threats and were threats from all sorts of what he understood as, and rightfully so, external thought that was infiltrating and hurting Judaism. Uh, lo- not, long before, not long before him, there was Shabtai Tzvi, there was a very much mystically driven and bringing thousands and tens of thousands of Jews away from a traditional practice of Judaism. Um, uh, at, at, during his time period, there's the birth of Hasidut, which he saw as an influence from Christianity and from different... So he is very... They were also very cut off, no? They they, they were very... He did live in Vilna, but he was cut off. There's no questioning that. For me, it's... It's not because if we to turn this into just Gaon Mivilna, it's one thing, but right. it wasn't just him. So to give this a full you know, psychological, social, anthropological a- analysis of Gaon Mivilna, this has been, uh, over the course of our history, really the, main, the mainstay in terms of, or, or the main, the main uh, um, uh, approach with regards to these Gemarot. The vast majority, I, would, I haven't done you know, the analysis, uh, of commentators to these Gemarot take them much more literally than, than Harambam would. Um, it's interesting, and I just want to call attention to, uh, A, for, for the point he makes, and B, to make a point on his point, Rabbi Faur Zichron Olivracha, here in source number three, in his book, he has a book, maybe less known, his, uh, a book written in Hebrew on Sefer HaMadav, Harambam. So in the first two pages of his book, um, he addresses this issue, Shedim uh, in the thought of Harambam, in a footnote. And uh, what he's angry at is that people assume Harambam must have thought because he was a philosopher. So he says, Gaon Mivilna is assuming Harambam didn't believe in Shedim, in demons, because he was a philosopher. The first point he makes is many philosophers, specifically in the Arab world, which Harambam was surrounded by and was well-versed in, did believe in demons. So he says, I can't can't accept that as as a just... Easy interpretation uh, uh, in terms of Hanam Bam's approach to this matter. That's what he writes in this first paragraph. And I don't know it well enough as I should, but does Hanam Bam contradict this anywhere else? So the answer to your question, it's a great question. The answer to your question is that he rarely, if ever again, talks about Shedim. So his silence seems to, for many, speak much louder than anything else. So the fact that he's silent leads a lot to believe, oh, he didn't believe in that, oh, and there's the proof. Uh, Rabbi Faur alternatively says the reason he was silent is because they didn't have halachic ramification. And Moren of didn't have another reason to talk about them. In other contexts, he didn't need to address it. Um, you know, needs to be analyzed fully. 
he, he makes this point. He has a very interesting point as well that I want to call attention to. He says the reason he believes that Harambam did not take that source, of the Gemara that we mentioned in source number one, instead quotes this Midrash, is to make a point. This is an ironic point. He says, whereas the Gemara already mentioned Ruhin, Shedim, and Lilin, Harambam wanted a midrash which just talks about ruach or ruhot and to define it as shed. In other words, Harambam didn't want you to say, I was, well, I'm, you know, I'm somebody. He wanted to come to this midrash and say, you see what the midrash is talking about? It's talking about a shed. It's a lot stronger, his claim. He gets across this point in a louder voice when he says, I'm defining for you what a ruach is. It's a shed. It's not just a gimara. I'm telling you, that's my interpretation. Now, the, the, the point of Rabbi Fa'ur, though, and then he quotes from our Morin in, in Perek Zayin, is that, you see, Harambam even addresses and talks about a shed where he didn't need to. You see, he must have, he must have accepted the existence of shedim. That's a little hard for me to understand what he's talking about, Rabbi Fa'ur, because ultimately speaking, the shed that Harambam is talking about is not the shed that Gaon Mivilna was talking about. That's the whole point of Harambam. He's telling you this shed is not a demon, it's a human being. So Gaon Mivilna, his, whole, his point is, you see, Harambam doesn't accept demons. That's right. So for Rabbi Fa'ur to make a point, no, he does accept shedim. Don't say he doesn't accept shedim, you just assumed it. He didn't. He accepted shedim as human beings. That's, he just used the same word. It's just, uh, it, it's, it's a little startling that he makes this point of it. He says, Ra'ayasha, shpatata shedim. One thing on this, I think what he's trying to say, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. probably, is human beings have an effect no matter what they do. So if they act in a way that it's not kitzam or kitmuto, that has having an effect in the other direction, which is then can, could be considered demonic. A hundred percent. It's not to say that's it, it's 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 a hundred percent not to say there are demons, but rather that human beings are the can demons. Can do things that ultimately exactly will, exactly. They, coming, but so that being the case, uh, I'm, it's it's a he'ara ketana just on Rabbi Fa'ur because he gets annoyed at Gaon Mivilna for assuming that Harambam didn't have shedim because the philosophy says no, he did have shedim. And he, had, he didn't have shedim like you just said. He had human beings who are demonic. Right. Okay. Regardless, that all notwithstanding. I want to just take a few moments to just flesh out how this would and does play out in the thought of Harambam. Because it's a little bit, I say today, in the general Jewish thought world, it's a little bit, called the simple Jewish thought world, it's a little bit untraditional. We're not used to hearing this. We're used to, or maybe in certain circles we are, but in other circles we're used to hearing the existence of, of demons. We have all these gemarot. How do you interpret these Gemarot? Obviously, each one needs to be analyzed and discussed separately. But I want to just take a step back and try to give a, a general picture. That's my objective now in the, the rest of the class. First and foremost, to read the words of Harambam, which are very telling in Perek Yodal, Vilchot Avodah Zarah, Halacha Yod, Halacha Yodal, Halacha Tetzayin. Um, in Halacha um, Yod, he has the following question. What's a Hover? The Torah talks about not being involved or being with or being a Hover Haver. The Gemara defines this, Arambam, they're talking, uh, things coming out of their mouth, they're not regular languages. They're not 
עד שהם אומרים שהאומר כך וכך על הנחש או על העקרב אינו מזיק, והאומר כך וכך על האיש אינו נזעק, ומהן אוחז בידו בעת שמדבר מפתח, עושה לך, יוצא בדברים האלו, הכל אסור. They say words or incantations to snakes or to, to, um, to uh, what's an עקרב, a... Uh, A scorpion, and they assume as a result of those words they've, they've, that they won't harm. They'll say words to a person and say the person can't get harmed. They'll hold a key in their hand or a stone in their hand as they say these things and assume as a result there's some sort of power. All of this is asur. He didn't say it doesn't have essence yet. He says the Torah says you're not allowed to do it. He says, furthermore, a person who believes in the haver haver is doing the wrong thing. Why is he doing the wrong thing? Second line here on the second side. They will not do anything bad, nor will they do anything good. They are substantless. They have no substance to them. There is nothing to this. He's referring to, again, Pesukim in the Torah. In source number four on the page, for example, the Torah in Sefer Devarim, at the beginning of Sefer Devarim, Perik Dalit, has Moshe's words to the people in which he says, well, well you're going to have a challenge. You might look up to the heavens and uh, pay attention to the constellations and the galaxies and get drawn into them like those of Don't do so. God has separated that for the non-Jews and for the idolaters and pagans. You are Am Yisrael are separated. Simple interpretation. Simple reading of the Pesukim is God gave them those forces and he gave you this force. Not that one is non-existent. Harambam says, no, that's not the way you read it. The way you read it is, that is nonsense, silliness, wrongful, made up by human beings. God separated you so you truly understand essence. Devarim Ha'elu, here on the uh, on the third paragraph over here. Oh, first on the second paragraph. Mishinishacho akrab on ahash mutar and see, there is uh, rabbinic statements that you're allowed to make those incantations in a circumstance where there's a danger. Wait a second. I thought the Torah forbade it. Wait a second. I thought there's no substance to it. Why should it be permitted? The reason is because since you might believe that this is effective in order to save your life, in order to help you psychologically, it's permitted. Oh, that's interesting in and of itself as well. But again, Arambam's words are very telling and explicit. Devarim ha'elu, all these matters. Kulan divrei sheker vechazaven vehem shehitu bahen avdei avdei zarah kadmonim legoyah ratzot kedesh yinahu aharehem. This is all made up by the leaders of the pagan and idolatrous sects in order to get people to follow them. That's all this is. In Raoui Israel, Go ahead. But these aren't his words. Which words? Mostly. He's injecting his own interpretations. Yes. Yes. Um, you're right. I should have given you sourcing and read it side by side, but you'll have to take my word on this. Um, that, they, that in this case, he's really injecting a little bit more. Yeah. Beyond. beyond editorializing. Be, yes. Yes. Beyond the bottom line. Right. Again, it's not that he can't read it that way. Well, it's that it's, it's not, it's not perforce the only, it's not perforce the simple interpretation of this. Is this a concession that he's making, saying that there's something His mentioned suggest- in the Gemara that says, you can do this, So, so, so the concession, as I'll suggest it uh, in a With moment, is, but, but, 
one and the same. Uh, in other words, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. We'll, we'll return to such a thought. Uh, lastly, he writes in this last paragraph, Any person says, well, the Torah says you're not allowed to do it, so I'll stay away from it. But the tarot card reader and the uh, psychic, uh, there, there is essence to it. God told me I can't go next to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He says, that person is silly, has a small mind, is stupid, and he likens it to who the, whom once upon a time didn't have education, women and children. Those who are knowledgeable, those who have complete intellect, they know with full certainty those things that Torah prohibited is not because there is essence, just stay away from it. There is nothing. These are the words of Arambam. Again, it's, 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 there are little, few mistakes you can make in reading his words with regards to how strong he is, how forceful he is in his contention that anything and everything outside of true intellect is non-existent. It is nothing. There are no spirits that can affect you with some sort of essence or force outside of your own mind. Um, how does he, and he doesn't have a full interpretation and commentary to Talmud, how would he address many of these gemarot that do mention them in Midrashim? Nobody knows the full answer. We can look at his students and those who followed in his ways to glean certain perspectives. There is a statement, I didn't find it for tonight, of Rabbein Avraham ben Harambam. Rabbein Avraham, the son of Harambam, wrote an essay on the Agadot, on the Midrashim, which are mentioned in the Gemara. And in it, if I'm not mistaken, he has a line where he says that many, if not all, of the Shedim that are mentioned, the demons mentioned in the Gemara, it doesn't take them from being not literal, uh, from being literal. He instead says those are all dreams. That's an amazing statement. You know, he, he gets tripped up on the fact that, gets messed up on the fact that the Gemara has so many mentions. He says that, that's when the rabbis were dreaming these things. In other words, don't take it literally that this actually took place. It was a dream there. Obviously, it has a message. Obviously, there's a lesson to be learned. Don't discredit it and assume there's nothing to be But it wasn't actually there. Alternatively, Rabbeinu Menachem so HaMe'iri... So bring a child back alive in the Gemara, that's a dream? Many of these, I can't tell you. I, so I can't tell you. That's what Rabbeinu Avraham Ben Harambam effectively is saying. Uh, you know, when many other such like circumstances. Rabbeinu Menachem HaMe'iri who was a follower and adherent of Harambam. There's a wonderful book written by um, Professor Moshe Halbertal. It's in, it's in Hebrew. Sorry, it happened in their dream, and then they... Then they, they recorded it in the Gemara. Again, I don't have it in I'm, front I'm of me, to... but I believe what he writes is it was a dream perception. In other words, it didn't actually... Maybe his way of saying dream is it's, it's imagined. In other words, this didn't actually happen. It's a story they told. Or it's a story they told in order to get across a message. So they told the story about what happened with these rabbis when they encountered the demon in order to teach the students and you and me a lesson. Uh, not per se that there was a demon that, that they encountered. Rather, in their imagination, in their sleep or whatever, they encountered it. But that being the case, it goes like this. So Rabbeinu Menachem HaMe'iri, who's a 13th century rabbi living as well in southern France, 
friends like Radak in Perpignan, if I'm not mistaken, um, who very much uh, adheres to a Maimonidean system of philosophy, uh, although France, northern France, was, had a, a whole different uh, perspective and approach to uh, Jewish thought and even halakha. Southern France, which was closer to Spain, was a lot more affected by uh, philosophical thinking and Maimonidean Harambam thought. Uh, he has, uh, in several places, whenever the Gemara talks about these sorts of matters, he has comments. So I brought two of them to give you a certain perspective for, in my mind, the two approaches that he'll have to these sorts. One is an allegorical interpretation, to a certain extent, and the other one is envisioning it as a concession of the rabbis to what people believe. I'll give two examples to get across this point. First one is a Gemara in the beginning of Masech Perachot and Daf The Gemara over there says the reason you can and should say Kiryat Shema Al Hamita, you should say Kiryat Shema before you go to sleep, is so that Mazikin Bedelin Hemenu, so that those who will harm you, spiritual spirits who will, would harm you, will be Bedelin will separate themselves from you. Well, it seems to be granting the existence of uh, spirits that can harm you. Rabbeinu Menachem Ameiri, in his commentary, Beta Bechira writes, Ube'uro Etzli, its interpretation for me is, Hamazikim Hayiduim. We're not referring to external forces and spirits. It's rather the forces and spirits that you and I are well familiar with that can harm us. Vehem Hadeot HaKozvim. Those are false thoughts. Those are misleading ideas. When we go to sleep at night and we have time for our mind to wander, instead of letting it wander in the wrong direction, says Mi'iri, set yourself straight on Yehud Hashem. And, and as a result, your sleep, your mind, as it strays, as it wanders, will be set straight. So what he does effectively then is say, Mazikin, are no external force at all. Very much in line with Harambam. Very much in line with the Harambam that we write about. The Shedim we started the, de- the night with. The Shedim being the demonic force inherent within a human being who isn't thinking straight. It's, you're not that at that moment. Correct. You are not tamim in that moment, and in turn you are skewed, and your mind and your approach is, is, is shed-like, uh, as you can conceive it. Elsewhere, uh, Mi'iri, in, in, uh, in what is a famous passage in Masechet Pesachim, at the end on Daf Koftet, the Gemara over there is addressing what's known as Zugot. Zugot was an ancient belief that um, you shouldn't have twos, you shouldn't have doubles, whereas today people get nervous about hamsa, fives. There was once, in time of the Gemara, not having doubles, don't have two of anything. And in turn, the rabbis wondered, how was it okay, how is it okay that we have four cups of wine at the seder? Well, those are two groups of twos altogether. You shouldn't you should make it a three or a five. That's problematic. And the Gemara has all sorts of clever interpretations to why it was okay. The most famous one being, among many, others on a full amud and a half, if I'm not mistaken, of Gemara, addressing this issue. Listen to how seriously they're taking it, that a demon will affect when you have doublets. It is not only unlucky, harmful, or potentially harmful for you to have doublets of anything. Gemara has all sorts of interpretations. One of the famous ones is that they cite the Pasuk in Parashat Bo, that in Parashat Bo, that um, the night on which Makat Bechorot took place, the night on which we celebrate Leil Hasid, Seder is a night which was Leil Shimurim. 
Those words are hard to translate. What's shimurim? Something that safeguarded. The rabbis have it as mishumar uba min hamazikin. It's a night which is safeguarded and wards off all those demonic forces. Oh, says the Gemara. That's why on this night and only on this night can we have the doublets. Can we have four cups? The Gemara has several other interpretations with regards to this. All right, all right. Well, it's Yom Tov Sheni. It's mishumar as well. But ultimately speaking, says Meiri, what is going on here? How are we talking so seriously about this? Why are the rabbis expending so much energy on this issue, which I've made clear for you, he says to us, is not a reality. Harambam has told us is almost, is almost touching on uh, pagan idolatrous practices, rites, and thoughts. Bekama mikomoti writes there in Pesachim Dav Koftet, Bi'arnu hazmanim in those times hamonim. The people used to be led by in their minds the masses. The masses had these sorts of wrongful thoughts. hashim um, incantations and uh, witchcraft and sorcery and all those sorts of matters. Anything that the rabbis discerned and decided. It's not that dangerous. It's silly. It's stupid. It's wrong. But it's not dangerous that it's going to bring you to wrongful activity and wrongful thought along the lines of Avodah Zarah. Okay, just leave it with the people. It's a concession to the people. It's the way they're living. I'm going to uproot that from them. If it's dangerous, I have to uproot it. Alternatively, just leave it be. And all the more so, he says, on matters which, if you talk to the people and told them, no, you can't do that incantation. Yes, you must have doublets because this is all right. It's going to cause them psychological, emotional angst and, and difficulty. The capit- uh, uh, in such a circumstance, the rabbis allowed for this. They even contended and explained it to the people to assuage their fears, to get them calm and not disturbed, to lead them in a place that, uh, in their wrongful thinking, it's at the very least not dangerous, uh, it's not going to bring them down the wrong path, and they in turn will be emotionally stable. He says the Gemara, he has a very clever reading of the Gemara. The Gemara over there says, the kapid, kapdinan le, de la kapid, la kapdinan le. The Gemara over there says, a person who's, who cares about the demons or of, of, of the, cup, the doublets, that will affect him. A person who doesn't care, it won't care about him. What sort of statement is that? Is that an existential reality? Is a reality? Or alternatively, he's saying, if you care about it, well, then it's going to affect you psychologically. Uh, alternatively, it won't. He says, as a result, this is what zugot is. Ironically, he points out as well as an amazing thing. He says that there's another halacha that, and, and he kind of just mentions this, that was birthed out of this concession of the rabbis. Um, this other halacha we've discussed in the halacha class more than once. You see, if the first night of Pesach is also a Friday night. Now, generally speaking, on Friday nights, we have a prayer that we say after Amidah. Whereas in Arbit, generally speaking, there's no Hazara and there's no anything. On Friday nights, we have a Beracha, Hatme, and Sheva, Magen Avot, and so forth. Now, the Gemara tells us in Masechet B'Shabbat that the reason he did that was because the synagogue used to be far out of the city. And as a result, it was dangerous because the demons and bandits and 
and anything of that sort, if a person came late to synagogue for them to return by themselves walking through the countryside. That's a dangerous time. And uh, as a result, uh, we extended the prayer just a bit so that everyone would finish on time and walk back in a group. That's a statement of the Gemara. What happens when the first night of Pesach is also a Friday night? There's a tremendous debate about this. But what, what emerges, according to many, uh, as the halacha, which Mi'iri mentions, is we don't say berachachat me'en sheva. Since that night is already protected from demons, as a result, we don't say it. Now, this is, until today, a hot topic in the halacha world. Rabbi Itzhak Yosef, he was just in America last week. He was talking uh, two weeks ago. He was alluding to this. He's been fighting this. This is a question of the Kabbalists versus the others. Uh, There's a whole conversation about it. But ironically, it says Mi'iri, this was all just to negate the concession, right? We're conceding. You believe in this Zukot business? All right, but it's a safe night. It led them in turn to deal with a tefillah, which ironically is also probably a concession, right? Because because there aren't those demons who will affect you on your way back, and then negate it. It means we constructed this whole right. edifice all out of uh, dealing with the psyche and and thoughts of the people and emotional well well with all, well with well with all of the people. Uh, Mi'iri then sets forth for us, to my mind, two approaches to these demons mentioned in the Gemara in the thought of Harambam. What are those two approaches? One, to, allegor- to allegorically envision many of those sugyot, to see the demon as being from us as opposed to outside of us. And alternatively, yes, people believed in this, and as a result, rabbis contended with it. If it was dangerous, they would have uprooted it. If it was in a circumstance it wasn't dangerous and to convince them otherwise would be dangerous for them, uh, they left it with them and explained ways of dealing with this appropriately. It means, just to put the whole class together, um, in a moment, Harambam's words here in Helek Aleph and Perek Zayin, which, again, were no surprise because we learned them in the past, and they're directly in line with his thought about Shedim, uh, is one in which he makes clear Shedim are not, cannot, and will not be some sort of force outside of our minds and outside of a world that you and I know. That is what exists. There's Borei Olam, there's true intellect and thought, and then there's me and you. And ultimately speaking, our job, our perspective, our direction is to refine that thought, to bring it to a state of being where it is divine. So then what are Shedim, which the rabbis mention? Well, it's part and parcel with our description of what reality is all about. If reality is about refining your thought, when you haven't refined your thought, you have created or allowed for the demon within you to, so to speak, take over. When the Gemara, when the Midrash in turn describes those children of Adam Harishon, Prior to Shet, who was Betzelem, Ubidmut, having the true intellect, they were Shedim. They looked and talked like human beings, but they were altogether different in terms of their understanding and approaches of mind in this world. Intellectually deficient. That was in stark contrast, we said, ironically, to Rav Sheri Ragaon, who said they had deficiency, and it wasn't external demons, but it was a physical one. That's a fascinating thing. Haram Babs, what are you talking about? I mean, he doesn't talk directly to him. This is this all and anything that we'll talk about with regards to deficiency. It's a true deficiency. It's an intellectual one. We just pointed out over the course of the rest of the class how this was 
and until today, at least in my mind, is not the popular view. Uh, Norman pointed out it was historically maybe a Sefarad versus Ashkenaz approach. In today's day and age, we generally envision it as a Harambam versus everyone else type of approach. And Gaon Mivilna makes that point, and it's not even so bold and courageous because he's really just speaking what I imagine everyone else was saying. He says, Everybody hit him on the head. They did. They all got nervous about this. They all yelled at him after. We're not just talking about Ramban Nachman. We're talking about pretty much everyone in the Jewish thought world. Not everyone, but many of them. Uh, we in turn understood at greater, uh, at, uh, and, and developed at a greater length Harambam's vision of these sorts of external realities as being silly, wrongful, and non-existent from his words in Hilchot Avodah Zarah, Perek Yodal, Finis Mishneh Torah, and lastly addressed briefly so how could or would someone with a Harambam thought and mind address how the rabbis talk about these demons in many places in Talmud, suggesting based on me that the approach could and would be one of two, either to allegorically envision it, like he said with Kiryat Shema, it's killing those, or it's warding off the demons, the demons in your mind, so you think straight, you go to sleep with Kiryat Shema, or alternatively, yes, this is the way people are thinking, so the rabbis, to a certain extent, turn the other way and say, okay, that's the way you think, here, let me tell you how to rectify that. It's not because they're admitting to the existence, it's rather because they're admitting to your existence, to your challenges, and within the constructs and the constraints of your life and your mind at that time, they're telling you a way in which you can appreciate and attempt to live a life of meaning. Uh, that, in my mind, I believe, gives, there's much more to say about this, but gives a, a pretty decent breadth and vision of uh, the world of demons in the thought of Harambam and thought of of, of a rational thinker like Harambam, of someone who will tell us consistently that Kiddushah, that Tahara, that Tum'ah, that all these sorts of matters are constructs and ideas which affect us and are not something external, well, straight in line with that is mentioned as well of Shedim. It's a construct, it's an idea which is inherent in us, not something outside of us. Baruch Adonai